Hey guys, I'm Jackie Brubaker, your host of That Girl, the podcast. I'm an author, performer, two-time Emmy Award winner, human relationship specialist, and founder of the wellness website, loveyouevenmore.com. Each week, I bring on inspiring people and experts in their field to have powerful, motivational, and enlightened conversations about relationships, self-development, and how you can live your most authentic life. Follow us for daily updates on myself and the podcast at That Girl the Podcast and at Jackie Brubaker on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and our Patreon page. While you're at it, make sure to check out my new wellness website, loveyouevenmore.com. If you're wanting to dig into developing more self-worth, be healthier about relationships, and learn how to date smarter, go to loveyouevenmore.com and follow us on Instagram at loveyouevenmore. Welcome, Rachel Rosenfeld, to That Girl, the podcast. Rachel is an incredible psychologist. She has a codependency clinic, and today we're going to talk all about narcissistic parents. Yep, that's a topic. We're going to talk about it. And as I like to do with all of my new guests, please introduce yourself because you guys do a much better job than I ever could. Uh, Thanks, Jackie. It's so nice to be here with you. I'm Dr. Rachel Rosenfeld, founder of the Codependency Clinic and daughter of a narcissistic parent as well. <laughs> that's it. That's what it is. Um, so when it comes to narcissism, as we all know, this is a term that gets thrown around a lot. Um, it's usually narcissistic traits we're running into with people. But once in a blue moon, we come into contact with a full-blown narcissist and uh They can be your parent. Um, Let's just talk about kind of for anyone who's jumping in, who's heard the term narcissist a a bunch, you know, what that actually means clinically and then what it can mean sort of in a social setting so that they can have a better idea. Yeah. The hallmark of narcissism is lacking in empathy. Um, And usually these folks don't present to therapy. So it's important to say that we really can't be diagnosing our clients' parents as being narcissistic um, unless that person is our client themselves. But um, what we do find is that um, being the child of a parent who um, puts their own needs first, and there's a few specific ways that can happen, um, is Difficult for children in a specific set of ways. So, um, if you have a grandiose parent, somebody whose need to be um, look good, um, both physically and socially, if that's if that's more important than what their kids need, um, that's particularly devastating to children, Um, sets them up for problems with self-esteem, problems with boundaries, problems with needs and wants. Um, Similarly, there's another kind of narcissistic parent that's the victim narcissist. Mm -hmm. And this is the person who um, we call it um, controlling from the victim position where um, instead of being grandiose, they are under-functioning and they control in that way. Um, This sets kids up for um, different problems with self-esteem and boundaries and needs and wants and things. Absolutely. Um, 
So um, without getting into my story very much, but we were just talking, um, I do have a narcissistic parent who I don't have a relationship with anymore. Um, And that was just ended recently. What's interesting with narcissism and narcissists, especially if, and I, I would put them in the the victim category, they'd be a little covert, <laughs> little narcissist. Um, I wasn't expecting to end a relationship, but it did happen. It just ended because he decided it to. And that alone is so jarring for a child as even an, an adult, you know, it's so jarring to sit there and be like, what the hell did I do? And that's the question a lot of children ask from narcissistic parents is, am I enough? What did I do wrong? Like, why can't I win this basically? Like, why can't you just love me for me? Yeah. Yeah. A couple things. So one, um, as, as human babies, we need our parents to love and take care of us or we will actually die. And this is different. Yeah. So this is different than like some other species that lay eggs, for example, like mammals need their parents. And so from a biological and, um, uh, um, like a basic level, we need our parents to love us and take care of us. So um, the threat of them not doing that is, is that we wouldn't survive. And then the threat with a narcissistic parent is always abandonment. That if, if you're not pleasing to them, they will discard you. So I, my guess is that subtly, this has been the threat all along. Um, And it's more threatening the younger you are. Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily, you're an adult now and you're going to be fine. Um, But the stress of that um, is traumatic for children. What we find in families that have narcissistic parents um, at the codependency clinic, we do a three-generation genogram where we go back and look at what, how the parents got built because your dad was made, not born. So we like um, the family con- context that he grew up in so that we can understand him. Const- um, it helps us to understand it's, it's a blameless inventory. It helps us to understand where he comes from. Um, and also that it couldn't have been any different that anybody that was born to him was going to have this problem. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't you, it actually predates you. Mm-hmm. Um, And another interesting thing that we see in these families is a history of discarding. Clients will come in and tell us, oh, yeah, well, my mom never liked my dad's mom or my dad's sister. And we stopped talking to them when I was three. I don't know anything about them. We start to see in the genogram. Yeah, it's like cutting off, a history of cutting off. And that's... Yeah. And so, and so you start to see also as a child that, um, you know, the threat of abandonment is real. And also you've seen it, you've seen them cut out your aunt and you haven't seen your aunt since you were seven. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I have an entire family that I last saw when I was like five or six and they are completely cut out of my life. I don't even know their names. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a pattern of discarding that goes along with families where there's a narcissistic parent. You know, actually, I think we should talk a little bit about um, codependency and how having a narcissistic parent sets it up because most people who were raised by narcissists do not know that they're codependent. Oh my and gosh. So part sorry. of that, yeah, part of that is because 
um, the word codependence is so misleading. Mm -hmm. Codependence, um, just the word makes you think that the person is dependent on others. Um, When the truth is, if you were raised by a narcissist, you learned not to be dependent on anyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually, this is a symptom of codependence, this business about not being dependent on anyone else. We actually call it anti-dependence. Okay. And folks who are anti-dependent are likely to even go without having certain needs met rather than share them with somebody else or take the risk of um, asking for them from somebody else. And this comes from a history of being shamed, humiliated, pushed away, laughed at when you had a need or a want. Um, and uh, unfortunately, folks that that live like this with their needs and wants not being met, they end up with a lot of um, mental health problems, um, substance abuse problems, or just addictions, workaholism is one, um, or even just physical problems like autoimmune disorders. And so... Um, I think it's really important that folks know that um, when you have a narcissistic parent, two of the most common outcomes, one is to become a narcissist yourself. If you're listening to this podcast, you likely are not in that category. Um, right. the other- That's always the best cue. You're like, if you're wondering if you are, you probably aren't. <laughs> That's the truth because they don't really wonder, nope. um, but it makes sense. If you have a narcissistic parent and that parent has, let's say, two children, One child may emulate the parent um, as a way of managing, and the other is going to learn to be um, pleasing to the parent as a way of managing them. So often we'll have siblings where one is a narcissist and the other is codependent. Now, it can happen that both siblings are narcissistic or both siblings are codependent, Um, but it's a very common um, outcome of having narcissistic parents. Um, And so what is codependence? Um, It's defined by five core symptoms. And when I say them, it's going to make a lot of sense that this happens when you grow up with a narcissistic parent. They are problems with self-esteem, problems with boundaries, problems with needs and wants, problems with perfection, and problems with moderation. So while folks who grew up with a narcissistic parent may not know that they're codependent, if you're having problems in these five core areas, you likely are dealing with what we call, but wish we had a better name for, codependency. Right. And while it's a club nobody necessarily wants to be a part of, um, the good news about accurate diagnosis is that it gets you to the right treatment plan. And so if you think this is something you might be dealing with, um, start doing some reading with an eye toward how do I heal from this? Because there is a clear path to recovery. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. So what does that look like if perhaps you're not as aware of having a narcissistic parent? What are, as a child and as a young adult, like what does that look like in relationship to you? Like if we're talking about the grandiose parent, obviously they're, you know, you just call them vain. You just call them selfish. It's all these words that people can use, but it's kind of at a, a different level where you know, I instantly think of that old movie, Mommy Dearest, like that's a really good example. (laughs) You know, sort of the actress mom who's like, I'm everything. And you end up as the child, you know, parenting the parent, which is a lot of what happens here so that you won't be abandoned. But for someone who's coming on 
and listening, can you give some, some scenarios as a child and what that might look like for a covert or an overt narcissist? Uh, yeah. So, um, very often, um, folks knew that there was something wrong in their family of origin. Um, often our clients are super high functioning. Um, and so they're really successful in life. Um, but they're usually not having the adult relationships that they want to have. And they, they have a sense that it's something to do with their family of origin, but they don't know exactly what, because, um, until you get to the right therapist or the right podcast, or you read the right book, um, you don't, you, you don't really know exactly what it is. And certainly I saw a ton of therapists that were really nice um, and they helped me, but they didn't change my life. What changed my life was somebody saying, I think that you had a narcissistic parent. And when I read Dr. Carol McBride's book, will I ever be good enough? I was instantly um, sad and relieved and finally understood like, this is what happened to me. Yeah. Um, and it started me on the journey of recovery and, um, and then eventually started to me starting the codependency clinic because I wanted to create, um, a treatment plan that I knew worked for this population, um, which is a combination of Dr. Kel McBride's work, Pia Melody's work and somatic experiencing. That's amazing. What can you talk more about somatic experience? Because I actually don't know what that entails. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, after I did the McBride work and the PM Melody work, I understood what happened to me, like intellectually. Mm-hmm. And I had had some experiential therapy as well, um, which helped to do some of the trauma work. Um, but I was still missing something. There was a way that other people were like in their bodies um, and able to be present in a way that I um, was always a little bit jealous of. Like, I really wanted that. Mm-hmm. And what I came to understand is, um, especially really smart children narcissists, they often will intellectualize at a very young age. Um, the stress of living in this environment with the constant threat of abandonment Um, is too much. And so we try to manage it as much as we can. And we do that intellectually. We also try, we have to escape the stress of it in our bodies. And so we go up into our heads. Um, So a lot of times we become intellectualizers. Um, So for me, um, somatic experiencing helped me to drop into my body um, and gave me that extra piece that allowed me to be finally, wholly present and relational in a way that I hadn't before. Um, Another thing that's super interesting about this that I wish somebody had told me (laughs) before I experienced it. Um, If you grew up in a family with narcissistic or just immature parents at all, your nervous system is set to the on position like all the time because you're hypervigilant. You're having to do what I call like Um, reading the weather of your parent all the time. Um, And what this, what this translates to is um, being super high functioning as an adult. Like I joke that um, since this was also my experience that for us, 
Um, our worst day is as productive as other people's best days. God, right? totally got it. <laughs> totally. Um, and so um, what somatic experiencing helped me to do was increase my capacity for rest because I was very good at working. Um, but when I, my to-do list would be done or I'd be faced with a Saturday where I had nothing to do, I would actually get really anxious and it confused me because I thought, oh, I'm supposed to be relaxing with my free time, but I found it to be really stressful. Um, and that's because in my family of origin, when my brain was getting wired, um, resting would be dangerous. If I took my eye off what was happening with my parent, um, then I would, I, I could get into a bad situation. So I actually had to expand my capacity for rest. Um, and now my baseline is calm and confident, but that it took some, some active work. Right. Absolutely. I completely understand that. Um, such a recovering high functioning codependent over here completely. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I just, uh, interviewed Terry Cole who coined that term and I was like, girl, I just want to grow up and be you. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> I just want to grow up and be you. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting because I've been really going through so much of what you're just talking about. I asked one of my best friends yesterday, I'm like, is it weird that I just want to go to school and work and that's kind of it? Like, I don't want to do anything else. I am tired. I just want to have fun. I literally want to start acting like I'm in retirement now. <laughs> and I think I was like, do you think this is bad or good? And he's like, I think it's good for you. <laughs> I think it's really good for you. And maybe just chill with it for a while. And I, I agree. I mean, when you've spent your whole life, I always say like, you feel like you're on a hamster wheel because you're just going and going and going and you say yes to everything and you want to fix everything and fix everyone. And like, I would literally hear someone say like, oh, I want to start a blah, 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 or whatever it is. And I'd be like, oh, let me help you do that. I don't know this person. Why right. should I? No, I don't have time for that or any right. kind of energy for that. But I would do it because it's so comforting. And it's a form of control. Yes. <laughs> and now I've just, once I really understood what I was doing and it did not take long people. Like if you are a controlling person, you are just trying to control to help your life feel more safe. Once you finally recognize that, I don't know for me, it was so much easier to just be like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Good luck with that project. It sounds great. Have fun. Let me know. And I just have been you know, really trying to enjoy my life for the first time. And when you bring up rest, I mean, for years I have been trying to rest, like actively trying, but then, you know, I'll sit on the couch and binge a bunch of like episodes of a show and be like, is this resting? I don't know. This feels kind of boring. Shouldn't I be doing something? And again, mm -hmm. that's just when it pops up and you're like, maybe active rest is a better for high functioners then just sometimes you need just rest, right? Like you just need mm -hmm. some rest, but sometimes you need like, what is fun? Cause I don't know mm -hmm. about you. Like, did you find that you weren't having like real fun or like, did you even know what fun was growing up? Cause I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely took some practice. Um, at, at first I, I looked at, um, what other people were doing. And if, if I was like jealous of what they were doing, then I was like, oh, I guess that's something that I might like to do. 
Yeah. And so in the beginning, when I was just trying to figure out like, who am I and what do I like? I, I would, I would use that tool as a way to point toward what I might be interested in. I'm not surprised that you often would reach to help other people. What I'm making up is that you were taught that it's your job to take care of other people. So when you have an immature parent, whether it's a grandiose narcissist or a victim narcissist, their needs come first. And so in a healthy family system, the kids' needs come first. But in a dysfunctional family system, the adults' needs come first. And kids that are growing up in a dysfunctional family system, they learn that that it's their job to take care of their parent. And their parent may even say explicitly, like, um, either you make me so happy or you make me so angry. And it it teaches the kids that it's that they are powerful enough to make somebody feel a certain way mm. and that it's their job to keep everybody happy and doing well. And when they do that, they are valuable. Mm. So this sets you up then to be um, doing for other people, helping um, in your adult life. And this ends up being exactly like you said, um, an overreach and um, ultimately so that you feel safe because in your family, when you were able to manage your parent and be pleasing to them, you were safe. This gave you a false sense of control Hmm. because as children, you never really are in control of your parents, but you, you learn that you are powerful enough to control and that it's your job to control. And then you start doing that as an adult. Oh my God. Absolutely. I mean, I, I I think it's always ironic that I sing and I've always sung, but having a voice was really hard for me to speak Mm -hmm. up because if I ever spoke up, it would be the end of the world. And quite literally, that's what actually was the ending of my relationship with my parent. Mm -hmm. It was because I literally set the most tiny boundary ever that yes. I didn't even think would cause any alarm, but it did. It just pressed the wrong point. And that was it because I felt like I could maybe say something. And that's really, you know, I see that in my past now, just how much I didn't speak up and how much I didn't try to rock the boat with every relationship, you know, unless I felt really comfortable with them, I really wouldn't try to rock the boat. And it's so interesting, like how life gives you different opportunities to work through that. Not only like, did I, you know, come back into singing, which is great, but you know, like last month I actually spoke at a women's summit for the first time and was so excited, but so nervous. (laughs) Like, oh my God. I'm like, how am I so nervous? Like, this is not supposed to be hard for me, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm singing someone else's song or even my song. It was, oh, I'm talking about my life to people that I do not know. And it was the ultimate use of speaking up and using my voice, which is so beautiful because for those of us who have had narcissistic parents and have been under-functioning with different parts of ourselves that should just be there, like speaking up and standing up for yourself, you know, sometimes it just takes a really long time to get there and to get the healing and I would also like to just say, like, there's no age that you need to have figured this out by, you know, maybe you're still confused by 
the relationship. Maybe you're still protecting the parents. There's a lot of protection involved too, because again, like you said, like you're protecting them. So you don't get abandoned Yes, and they will abandon you, (laughs) which is probably for the best, but (laughs) you know, I mean, still it's, people say things like, Oh, it's your only, you know, this parent or that parent, you only have one. And I'm like, it's okay. It's all right. I would rather be in peace than not. Yeah. It's the sort of ultimate expression of my way or the highway. Yeah. You know, you're pleasing or you are discarded. And those are the two options. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And people who haven't grown up with this, they, they really don't understand, um, and, and it's okay that they don't understand. Um, the truth is just because they were involved in your birth does not mean that they necessarily deserve the title of parent. Yeah. And so while they, they may have the name of mother or father, they really aren't um, acting like a parent. And so right. you really haven't lost that much. No, someone said that to me that when this went, when this happened and it just, felt right, you know, and it's, there's always going to be a part of me that does feel bad because my God, it is my parents and I do love him, but he is so abusive, honestly, Mm -hmm. to me that, and never physically really, but, you know, just mentally and verbally. And it's just not like, why hold on, you know, why keep yourself in that? It's interesting, um, this business about like, once you set a limit was when the discard happened, it's very common. And um, one thing that we see with narcissistic parents is um, sometimes they have really great relationships with their children until their children are about seven years old. (laughs) And that's when, (laughs) yeah, that's when the individuation starts when kids start to have their own thoughts and ideas and, um, and they become displeasing to the narcissistic parent. And so things sort of fall off. But um, often zero to five, um, the parents are enmeshed and or idolizing their children. And um, because at those ages, it's it's usually actually pretty comforting um, to have a parent be really close to you. Um, we don't end up seeing problems until starting around age seven. That's absolutely right. Oh my gosh. Amazing. What else can you tell us about fun facts of narcissistic parents? (laughs) Things to look out for. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, I guess I just want to say like, there's so much out there about dating narcissists and, Mm -hmm. um, and being discarded after a, a relationship or a marriage. But this business about being the child of a narcissist is a pretty like, sort of specialized subgroup. And it is, it is really different because two adults. um, So dating and marrying a narcissist is deeply painful. Mm -hmm. Um, But being the child of a narcissist is a special situation because first of all, it's shaping your sense of self. um, It's shaping your boundaries. um, It's shaping, um, how you, yeah, how you relate to others. Um, and the threat of abandonment is so scary for a child. Um, so it really is a whole different thing. And then as an adult, if you decide to go no contact or low contact, and I think I do want to say, um, some people say no contact is the only way to go. Um, I disagree. 
I think no contact is the saddest option of all of the options. Mm -hmm. I also have had to go no contact. Um, But I like to see if it's possible to do some other kind of contact first. If we're able to have uh, what Dr. McBride calls a tea party relationship, where we don't talk about anything that's super close to your heart, um, but we talk about travel and movies and um, always good to listen to what's happening in the narcissistic's parents' life. They usually (laughs) want to talk about themselves anyway. Um, So if you can do that and like, one of my clients goes on a hike with her mom. Like I think they're up to once a week now. And that way she gets some contact with her mom and her mom gets some contact with her and it satisfies something for them. And that's good. Right. In other cases, we've tried everything and the parent just insists on continuing to be abusive or be inappropriate with the now grandchildren and no contact is, um, is the only option, but um, I like to think of it as a, as a last resort, um, but something that we can do and sometimes have to do. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is not, uh, I don't want to say it's the, it's not the end of the world, but it, but it really isn't, you know, I think for children who have dealt as adults have dealt with narcissistic parents, their whole lives, like you're tired. You're just so tired of trying literally forever to make them happy, to walk on eggshells, to try to have a tea party relationship. I've done that too. And I know in my, you know, just personally speaking that, and I'd say personally so that other people, if they feel like, oh, wow, that's how I feel too. It makes you feel less alone. But, you know, I want it. On one hand, I feel bad that my dad didn't know me the way that most people know me. Mm-hmm. And he felt bad about that too, but, but I couldn't actually like be completely honest with him because if I was, I would be shot down. I would be yelled at, screamed at, disowned, all of it. So, and listen, I'm, I'm not some like, you know, crazy avant-garde person. I'm just a regular person walking around doing her thing. Mm-hmm. But even if I had an, an opposing opinion about something, it could be seen as a threat. And so he never got a chance to know me. And for me, I tried the very best I could while trying to keep myself protected my whole life. And I'm grateful that somehow in my very early childhood, I knew like, nope, do not poke that bear. Just don't poke that bear. Mm -hmm. So it did save me a lot of heartache, but eventually, yeah, it comes down to it. And, and, you know, I guess if you've gone no contact and you know, you've been, you are there and it's, I don't know. I just, I, I always wish him well. Cause I, I do always think of ourselves as souls. Like we chose a body, we chose a life. We're here for this lifetime. Let's see how it goes. We'll try to do our best, but you know, eventually we're going to go hopefully to another place <laughs> and sort of look at, look at our lives and be like, ah, shit, I, I could have done that better. <laughs> really could have, could have been better on that. And so maybe that'll happen, but even if it doesn't, you know, again, if you do the no contact, you have to know you've tried everything like you said. Yeah. And it's ironic because it's really the parents loss. You know, my experience of adults that were raised by narcissists um, is that mostly these are extraordinary people, like very high intelligence, very high emotional intelligence, 
super high functioning. I mean, these are the people that are running for-profit companies, nonprofit companies, doing a podcast, being moms and wives, and by the way, doing an awesome job at it. Like Mm -hmm. these narcissistic parents end up missing out on incredibly interesting, wonderful adult children that I think they actually would have really liked if they had created the space to get to know them. Oh, yes. I so agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny because since we do kind of take on a parental role, we have to, you know, it almost feels like you're, for me, it feels like I'm looking at my parent as the child and I'm like, come on, come on. Like we could have made this work. (laughs) Like, yeah, that, like, I literally thought that a few weeks ago, I was like, does it really have to be this way? Like, I don't think it has to be this way, but apparently it does. So, okay, we'll do it. It but does. Yeah. It does. And, and it's sort of like, if you were, if, if they were different, then it could be different, but mm-hmm. they're not. And yeah. so, um, I have a borrowed definition of forgiveness that I think is really helpful here. Um, that true forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past could have been any different. Mm, I love that. It could not have been any different. Mm-hmm. And all of this predates you and me. This, our parents were who they were before they decided to have us and any little soul that had been, that had been born to these parents um, would have had to deal with this. And so it couldn't have been any different and there's nothing that you could have done and it's okay. I love that. And I certainly feel that way. And other people are on their journey. I hope you guys get there too. I know you will. It just takes time, but let's talk really quickly about, or not quickly, let's just talk about um, when you have found yourself in a place where you are more healed and you've done your work and you've had a narcissistic parent and maybe there's no contact, maybe it's a tea party kind of relationship. We were talking before the podcast that, you know, you are suddenly ready to have a romantic relationship, but like the right kind. Um, And I know you work with people on that. What does that look like? How do you know if you're ready to do that, to, to look for that relationship? Oh my gosh. Such great questions. Yeah. So we started the couples enrichment center because what I found is that after people did their own personal healing, it was really normal to then turn toward intimacy and start to want to be relational and want to be relational in a really healthy way. Um, How do you know you're ready? Um, First of all, uh, you need to have done your own trauma work. And what I, the way you'll know if you've done your own trauma work is that you can stay in what we call the window of tolerance most of the time. On a scale of one to 10 um, of intensity, um, if zero is like you're actually pretty checked out and 10 is you're pretty um, activated, the window of tolerance is like a three to a seven. And this is like, a good meal, bad traffic, the normal ups and downs. If you're able to stay between like a three and a seven, most of the time as you go through your day, then you're likely not getting triggered into PTSD, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And then you're probably ready to start building a relationship. And um, it turns out there's a ton of awesome research just in the last 20 or 30 years about how to have a good relationship because most folks, they, they do their personal work. They're ready to get into a good relationship and they look around 
No one's ever taught them how to do it. Um, and, um, and there is no manual, but luckily we do have like really hard science about this. So um, the Gottmans spent over 20 years um, observing couples and even taking like biological data and seeing over a longitudinal study who stayed together and who didn't. What they found is that the couples who stayed together did specific things and the couples who didn't stay together also did specific things. And so now we know a lot and have empirical evidence about what creates a good relationship. Um, we have found that that combined with um, Sue Johnson's emotion-focused therapy is a really good combination um, for helping people move forward and supporting them in creating the adult relationships they really want to have. Ooh, I want to know more about her. Is there uh, is there a book? Are there many books or is it just research? Do I have to read journals? Because I read so many journals now and I hate it. <laughs> just The Gottmans have several books. <laughs> yes, um, I have their books. <laughs> uh-huh. And then Sue Johnson has Hold Me Tight, uh, which oh, is a okay. really good introduction to emotion-focused therapy. Okay, fantastic. I'm like, just please don't give me any more medical journals. I can't. No, yes. <laughs> so do you know it. <laughs> It's, it's interesting because we have to start addressing our attachment styles. So if you'd grown up in a nurturing family, you would maybe have gotten a secure attachment style. But if you grew up with a narcissistic parent, um, you're likely dealing with an anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment style. And until we start to own that that is our own um, default and not the cause of our partner... Mm-hmm. Um, that we're feeling anxious because we are anxiously attached, not because our partner's done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And so you can start to understand that, take ownership of it and start to manage it um, both individually and with your partner. Um, that's when you're on the road to a much healthier relationship. Absolutely. And we do have those attachment styles. I believe I'm avoidant, which sucks for a lot of people in my past, but uh... <laughs> but I'm recovered from being it. I'm trying every day. But I, I find that like, as long as you're staying really clear with your self-awareness and recognize, like this happened to me just a couple of days ago where I suddenly felt the avoidant part of me like click on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. This is nice. What you're seeing, this is all very nice. What you're seeing, you have wanted this. We are good you need to calm down. You're fine and safe. Calm down. And I was like, you're right. It's true. But it it does, it clicks on, but it's that it's doing the work on you. It's getting to the three to seven on the range, you know, and being able to like reel yourself back and be like, hold on. Or if it's the anxious one, you know, like, hold on. They're not abandoning me. Everything's cool. Like I'm just having a moment. It's, it's coming up. Let's just like breathe through it and work through it. Absolutely. You know, otherwise, yeah, yeah, no one would ever get together at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And if you haven't already, there's a book called Attached that is, Mm -hmm. lays all of this out so well, um, better than anyone I think could explain and um, super accessible Amazon. You could download it right now. Quick read. um, Definitely worth, worth knowing about. Absolutely. All right. Final question when we've had narcissistic parents, it is very easy to choose that parent again in a romantic relationship. And, you know, sometimes you just got to go through, I had one that I was like, Oh, that's the one that's the relationship that I'm going to learn 
all about that now. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> it was yep. rough, but I did. I got it through. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm actually really grateful that that happens. But yeah. when we've already done that before, um, when you're looking for a partner, again, being self-aware, knowing your attachment style, knowing your your default, what should people who might tend to feel more familiar with people with narcissistic traits, what should we do? What should we look for? How can we save ourselves from that? (laughs) Right. Um, Well, for one, forgive yourself if you've dated or married one or several of these. And I also will say that the breakup from the narcissist is often the catalyst to get clients into recovery. That's usually the devastation where they think, gosh, something's really wrong. Let me figure it out. We get a lot of calls um, with folks that are coming right out of a difficult breakup. Mm -hmm. Um, So if that's happened, it's par for the course. And I often will joke, like sometimes if you're under three, it's like, well, you've, you've dated fewer of these than most. (laughs) Um, but I would say when dating, you want to look out for love bombing for one narcissists like to move really fast. Um, they want to talk about marriage. They want to talk about moving in. They want to talk about putting a ring on your finger. And all of this is happening in the first three months when, um, your brain is full of all these like positive chemicals and you can't quite see the person for who they are yet. This works very well for the narcissist because it's sort of like a veil of excitement. Um, They can get you to commit so that by the time you find out who they really are, six, nine months down the line, you're already in quite deep. So be aware of love bombing and wanting to move too fast. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And thank God this is becoming so much more common and people are talking about it. Because yeah, if someone's talking about marriage, like a month in freaking run, just run guys. hundred percent. Not, that's not romantic. That is scary. Right. But it's hard because it, it's, you know, you think like, oh, they, they love me. They like me. They do see the value in me and in this relationship. And it's super easy to be flattered by somebody that wants to move quickly. Um, so what I would say, because it's so hard to run when you're being love-bombed, because it can feel really good. So if you can't run, at least slow down. Tell yourself that you're not going to move in. You're not going to make big decisions until six months, nine months. Really, it takes a year to know somebody. Um, and then if you're still this in love and you've seen them through all of the seasons, all of the holidays, you've seen them with family, sick, all of these things, and you still like the way they treat you and they act toward others, then think about moving in. Yeah, I love that. Oh, Rachel, this is so nice. Tell people how they can find you. I'll have it in the show notes, but tell them on here. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Jackie. It's been so nice to be here. Um, you can find us at thecodependencyclinic.com or couplesenrichmentcenter.com, and we're looking forward to meeting all of you. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Remember, sharing is caring. Make sure to rate the podcast and leave a review. We really rely on this to help get the podcast out there. Also, make sure to watch the video version on YouTube at That Girl the Podcast.